welcome back to another remote episode of Banter. Today we are thrilled to bring you an interview with Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. Congressman Crenshaw is a former Navy SEAL who served in Afghanistan for 10 years and received two Bronze Stars, a Purple Heart, and a Commendation Medal with Valor. After serving as a Navy SEAL, he got a master's degree from Harvard Kennedy School and then ran for Congress and won the election in Texas's second district. Today, he joins us to talk about his new book, Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage, and also address the ongoing coronavirus crisis. Thank you all for tuning back in. I'm Matt Winesett. That was Max Tui. Many of you probably first heard of Congressman Dan Crenshaw in 2018 after an off-color joke Pete Davidson made on SNL. Everybody expected him to show outrage, and he would have been right to do so. Instead, he handled the situation with grace, tweeting, Good rule in life. I try hard not to offend. I try harder not to be offended. That being said, I hope NBC SNL recognizes that vets don't deserve to see their wounds used as punchlines for bad jokes. Congressman Crenshaw ended up going on SNL later that week, making fun of Pete Davidson himself, and then winning the election to represent Houston. So we don't want to waste any more of your time. I'm Max Frost, your third and final host. We're thrilled to have you with us today. So without further ado, here is Congressman Crenshaw. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, Congressman Crenshaw, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Congressman, in your book, you write, a little perspective can be the difference between spiraling into dark despair and clawing your way back to the light. Well, right now, America seems to be at such a crossroads. So what perspective would you offer to America with the coronavirus crisis ongoing? Well, um, perspective is a part of that, and it's hard to tell people that when they're going through hard times. I mean, real hard times. Let's, let's keep in mind that the that the point of the book was was to provide solutions to outrage culture and kind of the, the pettiness of that, and, and things that weren't really weren't problems that people were making out to be problems. Now, people really do have problems now, and you can't deny that, but. The, the solutions I lay out, lay out in the book are still the same. Um, you know, when I, when I write that chapter on perspective from darkness, I'm writing it from the point of view of sitting literally in darkness because I'm blind after a, a bomb nearly killed me. And the, the only way to get through that is to understand that you actually don't have it as bad as other people. And that's really hard to tell people and, and they'll accuse you of being uncompassionate, but it's really not. Um, you know, you have the you have the ability to tell yourself a story about your suffering, and you have the ability to either either see yourself as a victim or see yourself as somebody who can who is truly courageous who can get through anything. Because you can't change what happened. You can you can hope that you 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 can ask for that pity, and you can ask to be a victim, but it doesn't change whatever happened. You can only change what what happens moving forward. The other uh, big piece of advice that comes from the book is the chapter on duty. 
And it's a duty to do the small things right. It's a duty to wash your hands right. It's a duty to, to engage in the social distancing you're supposed to. It's a duty to order more takeout from local business and, um, and help out where you can, or a duty to deliver food to senior citizens who probably won't come out of hiding for a while. And, and that in a duty to engage in, in proper discourse. This is where we're really failing as a country. I think all of these small things that I just talked about and the, kind of the courage to, to move past our hardships, I think Americans are good at that. I, I think we revert rather quickly as a people back to American grit, even though we live in a very comfortable place and we do complain a lot. But I think in crisis, I think we're good. It's our leaders and our media and our politicians and our social media pundits who quickly who who can't seem to revert to that grit and engage in the name calling and as, as a, a in, in disingenuous political attacks as a citizen the best thing you can do is is call it out when you see it or at least don't engage in it part of the solution not the problem Co- congressman you mentioned your injury and a lot of people know about your eye patch but can you talk a bit about your background i mean you're a navy seal injured in afghanistan now you're a congressman you just talk a bit about you know your background and what led you into politics. Oh well, yeah, starting from the beginning, um, I grew up in Houston, oil and gas brat. Uh, moved around the world because of that. Uh, always wanted to be a SEAL, so that's what I did. And um, didn't want to stop being a SEAL, but I had to because I was medically discharged and I fought the Navy for quite a while to stay in. Eventually got retired in late 2016. Had no. Uh, had, well, I, I guess me and my wife sort of thought in the back of our minds that maybe there'd be something to do in politics at some point. I was I was doing my master's degree in policy at the time at the Harvard Kennedy School. So obviously, I was already highly um, interested in, in more government work. Uh, but I but I thought I thought about it from an aspect of policy and especially the national security side, kind of sticking to what I was comfortable with. And then all of a sudden, the next day, I was running for Congress. It really happened that quickly when when the opportunity rose, and you know somebody forcefully pointed out to me, "Hey, you should just you should run for Congress. Stop looking for these silly jobs and run for Congress." And uh, turns out that the night before Ted Poe had announced retirement, who's my predecessor, and so it was an open seat in my home district, and so we went for it. And so, Congressman, what inspired you to write this book? Why this book, and why right now? Yeah, I mean. Some conversations started getting thrown around after I'd won, after I'd gained a lot of notoriety for uh, for the Pete Davidson SNL thing. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about writing a book. I wasn't sure where I would find time to write a book. wasn't sure what that book would be about. And um, got a meeting with an agent uh, in the D.C. area, and we just kind of started chatting about if I were to write a book, what would it be about? And uh, the obvious choice seemed to be this sort of mix between a, a Jocko Willink book on extreme ownership and leadership and a Jordan Peterson kind of deeper dive into uh, people's psychology and philosophy, which is, which is what I ended up with here and what I enjoy writing about. Cause I, I find I, you know, I have a lot to say about, uh, about how to be a better person. Not that I, live up to that um, all the time. You know, I'm very clear about that in the book, but, but there is a standard. And, and I think, um, I think there's a lot of lessons to draw upon from SEAL training, from combat, from psychological uh, literature and philosophy and history. So it's a really um, multidisciplinary book. I think people will be surprised by that and they'll enjoy reading it. 
uh, it's enjoyable. It's an easy read, but it's a, but it's but it's meaningful, and, and I think not quite as deep as Jordan Peterson, but you know, or, or who is <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Crenshaw? In addition to growing up in Texas, you also spent some of your upbringing in Ecuador and Colombia, and I'm wondering if if this problem of of outrage culture and a lack of resilience is a uniquely American issue, or if you observed it in your time in, in, in these Latin American countries and, and just elsewhere in your, in your world travels, is this an American problem or where are you seeing this? Well, you see it in developed countries. You, you see it, it's not just America. You, I mean, you certainly see it across Europe um, to, to an extent. Uh, you hear these stories and, and uh, these do, you know, the, the, the more advanced a country is, it seems the more likely it is you're going to see these, these, this kind of fragility. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't, well, let me, let me be clear too. I don't even remember it in America in the early 2000s when I was in college. This, this, as far as college campuses go, this is a new, this is a new phenomenon that, that popped up mostly around 2013. And that's, that's not my research. That's, that's me referencing Jonathan Haidt's book, The uh, Coddling of the American Mind. It's a great, great reference for the problem that I'm trying to solve here. And uh, I didn't want to dissect the problem. I wanted to provide solutions. And so, you know, and I also note in the book that I, I compare the Afghan, the typical Afghan to a typical American and what they might worry about versus what we worry about. And this gets back to the perspective thing. Um, you know, growing up in Colombia, uh, there is there is worry of being kidnapped and shot and, uh, you know, real, real worries, not not microaggression worries. And as a result, that changes how people's psyche uh, operates. It changes up what people find to be actually offensive. Um, in, in a healthy way, not to say that I wish we were at a point where we actually worried about those things, but we can imagine being at that point, and that's what I point out in the book. You, you, I'm not asking you to, in, to, to live in a terrible world. I'm asking you to acknowledge that the terrible world exists and you're pretty damn lucky, and that should, that should mitigate your outrage to quite an extent. Well, are you optimistic at all that now that we're facing such a massive crisis and you know, people really do have real problems now with unemployment skyrocketing and tens of thousands of people dying. Do you think that this is going to see a rolling back of kind of political correctness and the outrage culture when people realized we did have it pretty good and now we can see how quickly that can go away? Maybe. Um, I, I, you would think so. You would think so. You would think that when students get back to school next fall that uh, that's exactly what you would see. But the question is, will you? And, and probably not, because the reality is, is a lot of these people who are who are angriest already suffer from uh, uh, say an abundance of privilege. You know, i I don't see I don't see um, poor, hardworking people uh, screaming about the latest social justice warrior trend. I mean, do you? I certainly don't. I never have. Maybe they do, but I don't think they do. It's usually the more well-off supposedly well-intentioned left-leaning activist who um, who during this time may or may not lose a job, probably not. And if so, it becomes from, from some background where um, they'll be fine. And they, and they, and their intent on, on, on signaling how virtuous they are by demanding that others give more. And uh, that's what we saw before. That's what we're seeing currently. Uh, as I, I watch the pretty disgusting show that that occurs every day in the media and, and from my colleagues, 
And, uh, you know, it's I'm a little jaded because today is the day that uh, my colleagues yet again are deciding that they need to inject some silly progressive strings to um, to a, to another bailout package, which is, uh, you know, something we should agree on. Right. We, we don't want to keep going too far. Now I'm getting to the specifics policies of, of today. But, you know, when we're looking at forward at another bailout package, we don't want to keep adding money to accounts that aren't even close to depleted yet, but they, but they, that's what they want to do. What we want to do is look at what's working, what's working at keeping small businesses afloat and keeping employees attached to those small businesses and inject more capital into that particular fund, the small business fund or the payment uh, or payroll protection program. And Americans are wondering like, well, okay, we agree on at least that part. Why don't we just get that part passed? And that's a really good question. And that's usually not how it works. Usually there is some kind of political gamesmanship that happens to, you know, add more things to it. And that's normal politics, but this isn't the time for normal politics. And so what worries me is that, that too many Americans are not shedding the outrage culture antics that they need to shed uh, in this time of crisis. And that worries me for the future as well. Yeah, and we saw, so we, you mentioned last week some of the antics. I know on my Twitter feed, uh, the um, funding for the Kennedy Center for some reason was a big, a big issue in the bill that's supposed to just help recover. So you, met, you mentioned the Paycheck Protection Program, but what other steps do you think Congress needs to be taking right now? How are we going to get out of this crisis and how long do you think it might take? So my critique of the, generally of our strategy, um, I, I'm not so sure there's another role for Congress except to, let me just answer that question really quick. And I'm not so sure there's another role for Congress except to keep funding that particular program. If something else comes up as, as we assess how this is all being implemented, then, then, then let's address that as necessary. But this tendency that generally comes from Democrats to, to try to be the hero of the day by, by spending more of your money for no good reason is um, a bad, bad policy. Um, the only other thing I could think of, although I think there's already funding for this, frankly, is, is the, you know, the, the same amount of money and effort that we're putting into supply chains for PPE and ventilators um, to, to, to such an extent that there's a good chance we'll have way more ventilators than we'll ever need. Um, and we need to do the same thing with mass testing, because for us to get back to the new normal, and this gets to the other part of your question, the new normal, the, whatever we call it, phase two, uh, what Harvard is calling mobilize and transition, there's put out a white paper on this that I uh, did an interview on. It basically means, listen, we've got to restart the economy um, sooner than later and fight the pandemic alongside the, uh, the economy. The only way you can do that is if you're ready. Remember, what we're not explaining to people is that the whole point of being obsessive about the curve and how the curve is trending, the entire point of that slowdown of the pandemic is to build up our capacity on the public health side. And that's not being stated enough because the implication of waiting and waiting and waiting for a downtrend to occur and then we can open things up. The implication there is that, okay, well, what if there's a spike one day? Do we just close things down again? Well, we better not. We can't. And so we have to be telling people and explaining a strategy where we're in at a certain point, we actually just get back into society and get back into the fight. 
And getting back into the fight means a new normal where we're back at work, but maybe we're not shaking hands. Okay, maybe we don't shake hands for a year, which is fine for a lot of us. Maybe, you know, we're germaphobes. And, um, you know, maybe maybe we change the way our office is set up, but at least we're getting back to the office. Uh, maybe, maybe we get most industries and most workplaces back to normal, but, you know, we put off concerts for a little while longer. You know, there's there's a there's a good phased transition that we can engage in with a timeline that people can 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 at least plan off of. And we're failing to do that in a very bad way. I'm not even sure it's up to the federal government to do it. I, I think they should provide broader guidelines and then let the states handle it from there. Um, but but our leaders at all levels are, are failing to make the case for that stricter timeline and bold timeline, uh, failing to explain, hey, when we have this amount of metrics as far as hospital space, um, you know, ICU beds, ventilators, testing capacity, we're actually going to open up society and then, and then fight this in a more targeted way. Nobody is saying that, and, but, but everybody knows it has to get done. So that, that's, that's, that's where we need to get to rather quickly. Congressman Crenshaw, in addition to the Harvard white paper you mentioned at the American Enterprise Institute, our own Scott Gottlieb has also been working hard on plans for reopening the economy and what markers are that suggest we're ready to enter the next phase and, and what that next phase looks like. But I think, you know, strategy and policy plans aside, Americans will be fearful when things do return to something close to normalcy. There's going to be a lot of fear. And this is directly related to your book, titled Fortitude. So how do you make sure that Americans, when things are, it's no, when coronavirus is no longer an epidemic level of spread, how do you reassure Americans that things are going to be okay and that we can basically live as normal without perhaps the handshaking and concert attendance that you just referenced? How do you assure Americans of that? I mean, tell them, you know, there's not some science to this. Like at a certain point, we just have to be like, hey, I'm just not going to be that scared person. You know, there's a coddling that, that's so tempting for leaders and politicians to want to coddle people. No, guys, we're, this is serious. We got to be tough and you have to decide you have to be tough. You know, one of the chapters in my book is called, Who is Your Hero? And what that's about is basically setting a vision statement for yourself identifying the, the courageous, good-natured, funny, happy, smart people that you want to be and be them. And don't, don't, and the problem with our culture right now is that we've, that we've sort of changed, we've totally changed who we view as heroic, right? What we view as heroic now, what gets the most clicks, what gets the most attention are victims. Remember that video that ABC published without any fact-checking at all? that nurse who was crying and saying she got, she had to quit her job because her hospital wouldn't let her wear a mask. And it was just, it turned out to be a lie, but that was got so much traction, just like Jesse Smollett got so much traction, just like Elizabeth Warren has this incentive to say that she's a victim, to say that she's a, you know, she was native American or that she got fired for being pregnant. All of this points to the fact that we have elevated victimhood status to an extraordinary degree. We just have to collectively say that we don't want to be that person. We want to be a strong person who is not, who maybe has fear, but overcomes that fear by, by doing your duty. And your duty is to live your life. Your duty is not to shut yourself in and be scared all the time. If you, if you are scared, well, guess what? We have information on how to mitigate that fear. You should be scared of driving too. Tens of thousands of people dr drive every, every year and die. 
but we mitigate that through some some information and some structures and from learning how to live with that risk that this is no different so it's a bit of it's a bit of tough love and uh, combined with a coherent strategy about how to actually mitigate uh, mitigate the threat on a foreign policy side some people would say one way to mitigate it is to make sure china can't lie again and the who can't cause these problems and uh, i know yesterday i think the president tweeted uh, about rethinking funding of the WHO. Where do you come down on some of these issues? How can we hold China accountable? Should we? And WHO, should we cut funding to them? Yeah, I'm on a, I think we're, I don't know if they've uh, dropped that bill yet, but I am co-sponsoring a bill that, that says that exact same thing as, as a sense of Congress um, and, until they change their leadership out. Their, their leadership needs to be fired and, and switched out immediately. Um, that That's, that's the truth about the WHO. Um, you know, we don't want to do away with it completely as an international organization. It does do some good, but only if it's led by people who aren't corrupt to the core. And they've made it very clear that they are corrupt. Um, that doesn't change anything moving forward. That doesn't change our strategy moving forward. The, the, the conversation about China, though, more generally, um, there's a lot of political will to make China pay. The question is, what does that mean to make China pay? And so, that's that's a technical discussion, and it sh- it should be a careful discussion. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a uh, a reaction and, and sort of an emotional tit for tat. It, it needs to be based off of sound strategy. Um, maybe there's things that we do in the future. Certainly, um, certainly bringing a lot of our supply chains back home and figuring out how to do that. That seems pretty obvious. As far as punishment goes, it's a little less clear how we would do that. Is is are there really ways to to quite literally make them pay, um, and and what will the cost to those uh, be? You know, maybe AEI will write up some good ideas for us on this one, um, and a lot of ideas are being thrown out there. But uh, it, it's also an opportunity to dust off a lot of the policy proposals that have long been out there. Uh, as just as a general realignment against China, um, you know, economically speaking, and uh, maybe there's more political will to actually do those. Whether it's whether it's being a little bit more proactive in developing countries, making sure China isn't buying up every single port around the world, offering those same countries different financing options, um, maybe taking a harder stance against Confucius institutions and institutes at our universities battling back against intellectual property theft. Again, these were all problems before the pandemic, but maybe it's time to just really take a a harder look at those problems now that there's political will to do it. On the supply chain front, you're right. It does seem like this is becoming kind of the common sense idea that everybody can agree to, but where does that leave us in terms of, I mean, you're a conservative, so are we, we support free trade and free markets. When, when we talk about bringing supply chains home, are we, are we talking about becoming more protectionist or is there a better way to go about it? Yeah, you can call it protectionism. You can call it an industrial policy. You can take the Orrin Cass approach. You know, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting debate, I think, in, in conservative circles between um, guys like Orrin Cass and, um, and maybe the more libertarian, you know, Cato Institutes or, or Heritage. And then you guys... AI seems to be a little bit everywhere, which is which is neat. I like that you're not, not too beholden to one specific uh, philosophy, um, and that's an interesting debate that has to be had. Um, I think there's a middle ground there. I, I don't agree with a lot of what Orrin Cass says. I had him on my podcast the other day, and we argued about a couple things and, and agreed on a couple things. 
But there's a very good point to be made that there, we, we can't, we can't just assume that because a country has a comparative advantage in making something that it should just be made there and we should just let it happen. That that's a, that's an, that's a, that's a interesting academic point to make as we learn about trade, as we learn about the economy. But in practice, we have to question that assumption just a little bit and say, okay, well, Saudi Arabia can make oil a, a lot cheaper than we can all the time. Does that mean we should just let them make all of it? Does that mean we shouldn't have producers here? Of course not. Of course, that would be insane. Um, same with the mass. Same with the, same with same with farm. You know, it's it's why we end up giving these annoying, lar annoyingly large subsidies to our farmers, um, because there's a good chance that a lot of them wouldn't survive, and we would import more. And then what happens when those imports stop? There, there, there are real discussions to be had here about about at least a. You know, what is the cushion that we provide to some of our industrial base? There's a real discussion to be had about the the benefit of a manufacturing job versus a service job. And it's it's got to be okay for conservatives to have those and, and, and have a seat at the table um, and bring conservative principles to bear against those problems as opposed to saying we're not allowed to solve those problems. Well, I want to circle back to your book for a second and also reference – Another, as you said, AI is not too beholden to any sort of conservative philosophy, but we do have a lot of unity in terms of our emphasis on institutions right now. And you can even see that with the alliance between thinkers like Yuval Levin here and then Matt Cottonetti here and others. And they always emphasize the importance of institutions that American people have lost faith in. Or the only institute we, institution we really trust across the board is the military at this point. So in terms of building fortitude in American people, what institution in your mind or number of institutions need to step up as opposed to a sort of change in our national philosophy? What about institutions that can help lead that charge? The oh, media. I mean, the media is the worst. <laughs> Just by like a huge, long, enormous shot. Uh, Congress is a close second, but media is by far the worst. Um, and I, I, that's not just me saying that. That's in all the polling as well. Um, it was, uh, so what can they do? They can do their job. They just do their damn job. It, this, is, this is getting out of control. So there's, there's two main jobs of the media. You know, be adversarial against the government and also inform the public in the most uh, contextualized, factual way possible. They are very good at one of those things, and they're terrible at the other you can guess which one it is. They're terrible at the at providing context and facts, and um, and their overwhelming awfulness totally overshadows the many good journalists that are out there that do try to say, hey, let's provide some context here and there, here and there. But it's 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 really shameful to see people who have access to the White House on a daily basis and proceed to ask the stupidest possible questions imaginable. The best question asked so far is whether President Trump should pardon Tiger King. I mean, that's the, that's <laughs> the best question so far. And uh, it, it's just a sad day. You know, it's usually about, it's usually these gotcha questions that are just, that are just utterly unimportant to most Americans. Um, and this is just, isn't the time for it. This just isn't the time for it. It was just pointing out today on social media, how CNN quickly changed their headline from the truth to the non-truth, um, based on, uh, what Democrats did with respect to blocking the, uh, the next, uh, set of funding for the small business program. 
so they just they they deliberately manipulate the facts and then and then claim that Republicans are doing the exact same thing. So the, the bias has just gotten so utterly out and con, out of control, which is why they have the lowest approval rating. It's such an important institution. There's not that many institutions that are specifically referenced in our Constitution. This one is because it's so and it's the first one in the Bill of Rights. It's one of the first institutions mentioned, along with the church. And these are in speech. And you can you can argue that speech itself is an institution of sorts, the idea of free speech. And these things are important. It's why they're number one in the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. And they're not being taken seriously. And these people are not living up to their duty. Again, I'll go back to the, it's probably one of the more important chapters in the book for a time like today, which is a sense of duty, like have a duty to do the right thing and do your job. And, and these people, you know, the problem is, is they believe they are doing their job, but they're not. And they need to be reminded that they're not and they need to do better and uh, read my book. Maybe they will do better. So, <laughs> so my next question for you was about Tiger King, but I'll refrain from asking that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a good question. Uh, how has the president handled it so far? How's he doing? I think he's doing about as well as, as anybody would have done in this situation. You, you, you could debate back and forth whether, whether his, his, um, his demeanor is always perfect. I mean, he, he's, still, he's still combative as ever and lashes out. That's what he does. Um, but as far as actions taken, and this has been the case throughout the administration, right? As far as actions taken, it's hard for me to look at this and say, well, you really screwed up here. This is another administration would have done so much better in this particular point. And uh, with this, with this particular set of facts and information at the time, um, the only big difference that I see would be if, uh, if Joe Biden was president right now, or Nancy Pelosi was in charge right now, we know damn well that they would not have restricted travel from China on January 31st. We know this because they told us. They told us over and over again how bad of an idea it was. The World Health Organization told us how bad of an idea it was at the time. So this, this isn't being talked about enough as, as, the, as, a, as such a huge single point of success for this administration that has to be, in, that the American people have to be informed about. Um, instead, the, the media is is just trying as hard as they can to spin this narrative that, that the president ignored and downplayed this for, for months. And, and I think his explanation of that is perfectly reasonable, which is, look, I, I, I want to be optimistic. I don't want to panic in front of people. That doesn't mean we weren't taking actions alongside of that optimism. And they were. And I have a long list of, of what's been happening since, since the CDC issued travel warnings back in January 6th. Okay, not a single Democrat was doing anything about this stuff or even knew about any of this. In fact, you know, there's videos of Nancy Pelosi telling everybody in New York to go to the, to the Lunar Festival, not to be afraid. And so the, the and I'm not blaming her for doing that. I'm not billing, blaming Bill de Blasio for doing that either. Because they were operating off the set of facts that we all had. They were operating off of the all of the media headlines that said, the flu is worse. Don't worry about this. But what gives me, which is, again, I'm ranting about the media again, what makes me so angry about them is that is the hypocrisy for them to basically say the same things that everybody else said, but then go back and from and, and moral grandstand and point fingers. 
and say, oh, how could you have known? We all knew back then. And then, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not true. And we need to fact check them. So overall, I, I think the administration gets good, gets, gets decent points for this. They're, 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 you're, you're dealing with a pandemic um, and you can always look in hindsight and, and with 2020 vision and say, well, at this point we could have done better, but those are gonna be pretty marginal improvements, to be honest. All right, one final question then. What is one long-term effect on America do you think that will happen that maybe right now nobody is talking about? The one that I, for an example, I read in a newsletter this morning from Jonathan Last that we might have now all gone to our last movie in a movie theater ever because they all might all go out of business and people might not decide that they want to go to movie theaters anymore. So are there any, are there any kind of screwball, odd, knock-on effects like that they, that you've been thinking about that might be permanently changed now as a result of this pandemic? Well, I mean, that, for instance, that, that's a good example um, where people, because, because it doesn't quite reach the threshold of like, man, I really wanted to go see a movie and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to go. Um, you, you might, that could very well be right. I don't, I don't really know. Um, you know, here in Texas, we, we now deliver alcohol. And so <laughs> hopefully that'll be a, a, a regulation that stays that way. Um, you know, doctors, uh, doctors can uh, do telemedicine across borders. It's kind of questionable whether, why, why, why that was illegal in the first place. You know, the FDA moving quicker on, on approving things. Uh, maybe that should stay around as a, uh, as a general rule. There's a lot of deregulation that has happened. People, people are worried about the civil rights aspects of these things, of these new restrictions, and they should be, especially when there's punishment involved. But, Keep in mind, there's also been a lot of uh, deregulation that's happened, too, that I think we should applaud and maybe keep around, especially in Texas with the alcohol delivery. I mean, wow, it's great. <laughs> All right. Let no one say that nothing good has come from this. We do have that, at least. Congressman, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for all the work you do. Well, thank you all for tuning back in. We hope you all enjoyed the episode. Please, as always, we've been a little bit uh, remiss reminding you lately, continue to leave iTunes reviews. I checked this morning. The reviews are going up, or the ratings are going up, I should say, but the reviews, we've not gotten a new one in a little bit. And we really like those. We'll read them out on the show. So please do so. And in other words, we know that there is a bear market right now. That being said, there's also a bear market in podcast downloads. So globally, podcast downloads are down by what, 30%? Is that what you said? I heard 35%. 35%. So do your part, fight that, tell your friends about banter, and let's get these numbers up because our jobs may depend on it. I thought that people in quarantine would actually listen to podcasts more. I don't know what people are doing right now. I mean, we hope that your important policy information you need is coming from the guests we have on the show and from AEI Research at www.aei.org. See what we're doing on coronavirus and much, much more. We're talking about it all, and we are so proud to work at AEI in a moment where our message is vital to the progress we make as a country. Related to that, follow AEI on Instagram. Every Monday, we have Scott Gottlieb's appearances on Face the Nation broadcast in their entirety on our Instagram channel. This past Sunday, he talked about how China can be held accountable from the World Health Organization or the United States or whoever, because they definitely must be held accountable in some way for this unprecedented amount of damage they have inflicted upon the world. And while you're looking for ways to entertain yourself to the quarantine, our very own Matt Weinset has a new article in the National Review where he reviewed the book, The Plague. 
fantastic article, timely, prescient. Highly recommend that everybody reads it. When I first saw that article title, I thought he was talking about our show. (laughs) (laughs) I guess there's a book about it, some some terrible disease. But no, seriously, please check it out. It's great. Matt, Matt, are you proud of it? I was pretty proud. I mean, always happy to have it published in National Review. It was my second piece for them. This one was the first one edited by my friend Jack Butler, a friend of the show who listeners may remember. He guest hosted the George Will episode with me. He's now an associate editor over at NR. But thank you. I really appreciate it. So thank you all for tuning in. We don't need to waste any more of your time. We'll be back here next week. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay safe.